This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 192, and I'm interviewing Olivia Scobie, author of Impossible Parenting. And we're talking about the culture of impossible parenting and its impact on our mental health and how we need to shift from self care to self parenting and more. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a link to Olivia's amazing book at summerinandin.com forward slash 192. I want to give a shout out to Dancing Crazy who left this awesome review, Game Changer. This podcast was a game changer for me when it came to changing my relationship with my body. Can't recommend it enough. Thank you so much. Short and sweet. I love it. Thank you so much for that awesome review. You can leave a review for the show. It helps others to find the information you are learning here. You can do that by going to iTunes, search for Eat the Rules, and then look for ratings and reviews, and then click to leave a review. You can also help me out by subscribing to the show via whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. I'm probably missing some of those, but any of the different places that you listen to podcasts. And if you haven't already done so, get the newest, the latest and greatest version of the 10 Day Body Confidence Makeover. It's brand new, just came out at the beginning of March 2021. Go to summerinandin.com forward slash freebies and you'll get those 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm obviously a parent. I know that there's probably a large percentage of you listening to this podcast who maybe aren't a parent and and that's totally okay if you want to skip through this one. Although I do think it just speaks to, you know, just like the cultural expectations that we have in general. And it can be helpful even just from understanding like our own relationship with our parent in terms of the expectations that they had depending on the generation that they grew up in and how that kind of manifested into their parenting and their own maternal mental or paternal mental health, I should say, and how that really formed, you know, the relationship that we have with them. And one of the other things that we talk about in this episode, which I think 
is pertinent to anyone, regardless of whether you're a parent or not, is just that there's going to be a certain amount of relational trauma between parents and their children. You know, like as a parent, you sort of go into parenting thinking like, okay, I want to try and do everything right because I want to avoid traumatizing my child in any way because the trauma that we had when we were children really sticks with us. And I think that in the context of the work that I do, a lot of that is around comments made about our body or seeing our parents dieting and how that influenced our own relationship with food and our bodies and created these sort of, you know, incidents of, of, of trauma that, that shaped who we are and how we show up in this world today. And, and it was such a, we, we get to this later on in the podcast, but just how, you know, you, you can't avoid traumatizing your child. I mean, obviously, there's a difference between, you know, like intentionally hurting someone or being abusive, but trying to avoid any kind of relational trauma at all sets this standard for impossible parenting, which is obviously the title of Olivia's book. And I I was kind of surprised, to be honest, because I was because, you know, you just when you're a parent, like I'm, you know, my son's two and a half at the time of this recording. So you really start to think about like, okay, you want to try and do everything right to avoid like screwing them up. But it's literally impossible. It is impossible. And I think it's important for people for us to understand as well, just from um, the perspective of being a child of somebody and having grown up and, you know, knowing that like, in a lot of instances, our parents were probably just doing the best that they could. And it can help foster forgiveness in areas where perhaps we are holding a lot of anger. And again, it's like forgiveness is not about saying that what they did was okay. But rather, it's about finding that kind of peace and understanding within yourself. And I'm probably going off too far on that tangent. And then the other thing we talk about here that I, that is really pertinent to everyone is just this idea of switching from like a model of self-care to a model of self-parenting. And I think that that is like, that's applicable to everyone. So, you know, I wanted to, to kind of preface this episode with that information for you, because if you're not a parent, you might be like, I'm going to skip through this. <laughs> and that's totally fine, too. But I feel like there's some there's some things that we thread in here that are really applicable to everyone. And I really loved reading Olivia's book. I wish I'd had it when I was a couple years ago or two and a half years ago before I had my son. But it was still super, super helpful now. So let's get started with this show. Olivia Scobie is a queer social worker who specializes in perinatal mood, birth trauma, and parental mental health. She is the executive director of Postpartum Support Toronto, a not-for-profit that provides barrier-free access to mental health support for new parents having a tough time adjusting to life with a baby, as well as co-founder of Canadian Perinatal Mental Health Trainings. She believes in the healing powers of fresh-baked bread, telling your story, and supporting family through difficult times. Olivia was actually one of my clients many years ago when I first started doing um, work around healing your relationship with food and your body. And, um, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And I'm actually quoted in her book. And I'm super, super grateful for that just as it relates to healing your relationship with your body. But it's just it's so cool, because I think that I like I admire her work so much. And I just feel really honored that I got the I got the chance to work with her. She said it was fine that I talked about this, by the way. Um, <laughs> I never breach that client, uh, the privacy agreements that we have, but we had talked about this in advance. So anyways, I just wanted to share that too, because I'm just like, kind of fangirling on her, even though she, uh, she did work with me in the beginning. And that's how we met, originally met each other. 
Okay, let's actually get started with the show. Here we go. Hello, Olivia. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here today. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I just loved your book and I'm so excited to talk to you all about it and some of the concepts within it. And I think it's just such a, like a, an important topic as it relates to, you know, the way that we feel about ourselves, like the way that we feel about ourselves in general is so closely tied to kind of the, the way we feel about ourselves as parents and all this stuff is, is really interconnected to, uh, you know, the work that I do. So I'm excited to, to kind of dive into it. Totally. There's so much about identity politics that shows up in bodies, but also in parenting and, and all the different parts of ourselves. Um, I really, I really get that. Yeah. So before we, we dive into that, I'd love you to share your, your story, just how you got interested in working with people around paternal mental health and specifically writing about the culture of impossible parenting. I think like most folks who end up interested in things related to perinatal mental health, it was really linked to my own story. And I, I usually say that I started young when it came to having children. I was just at high school when I got pregnant with my first and I had a really idealized vision in my head about what it was going to look like being a parent that was largely based on the Gilmore girls. I really saw myself as like a Lorelai Gilmore in this situation. Um, but that's not what it was like. I had a really hard time after my first child was born. I had a really traumatic birth. We had a lot of issues around feeding and health. Um, my baby was born with a lot of so complex stuff happening in their body. Um, and they were not a very good sleeper. And so I fell into a really deep depression, um, that I was able to sort of pull myself out of it and keep going. I didn't have a lot of help the first time, partially because I didn't know what was happening, but also because I was really young and really poor and it just wasn't that safe or easy for me to get support around that. And then when I had my second, I had really intense uh, postpartum anxiety with him, but I was able to get support in a really different way. And I was really marked by the differences around navigating mental health when you can really easily without getting in trouble, um, uh, get the kind of things in place that can help you get through it. And I was also really struck by just how much of my experience was influenced by the ideas and the information I kept getting around how to be a good parent, around how to build a relationship with your child. Um, my first child was born in the height of like the rise of attachment parenting as a uh, as part of like Toronto policy. And so during this time, there was a campaign called The Years Before Five Last the Rest of Their Lives, which was this really intense um, free programming. And young parents were particularly encouraged to take it that gave us all these like practices that we should be doing with our children if we wanted them to grow into uh, people who would have healthy relationships growing up. And I wasn't doing any of them very effectively. And it really terrified me and sort of got me started on this path of trying to understand what part of my crappy maternal identity was coming from feeling like I couldn't measure up and what parts were coming from an internal place of feeling like I'm not doing a good enough job. And that started, I don't know, decades worth of research. <laughs> this like really intense personal experience. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so now like you, you help people around, like in your practice, you, you specifically focus around like postpartum and like paternal mental health and things like that. Yeah. And so I, it was I'll sort of skip past the like nitty gritty of all the research and schooling to get me here, but that's what I do now. I work as a clinical social worker and I specialize in things related to perinatal mental health because, um, I just want people not to have to go through what I went through in the way that I did. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you do Yeah. Yeah. You, t- you, you tell your story a bit in the book and just really talking about how like your expectations didn't match your reality. And I feel like that's such a common narrative and can be such a, like a shocking experience as well as a really defeating experience because you think that you're the reason for it not matching or you're doing something wrong. I'm sure that that's, that's something that probably comes up a lot when you're, when you're chatting with other parents. Absolutely. Because that transition into parenting and who gets to be a good parent, who gets to be witnessed as a good parent is a really huge contributing factor in the way that having a child really takes over, becomes your most salient identity um, for a really long time. Some folks might say um, forever. I don't know that that's been my personal experience now that I have older teen kids, but they're, it's really connected. This idea of, am I doing a good enough job? Um, Because everybody wants to be really good at parenting because it feels so incredibly high stakes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so let's let's talk about the culture of impossible parenting. Like what what is the culture of impossible parenting? I think in a snapshot, the culture of impossible parenting is the way that we are taught that um, to be a good parent, we need to rely on experts to guide us. It's a real disconnection from what our natural um, instincts might be telling us to do with our kids. It's a real disconnection from feeling like we know the answers or we can figure out the answers on our own. And it's being really outwardly oriented instead of inwardly oriented um, to trying to perform what it means to be a good parent. And I usually liken um, six different factors that really contribute to this. So the first one is related to sacrifice. So the idea that like the more you sacrifice, the better it means you are a parenting and the more you love your child in some way. And so it be, there becomes this really sick cycle of in order to feel like a good parent, I need to go without in some way, or I need to be um, suffering in some way, which is a terrible cycle to be in and really negative in terms of the impact on mental health. I also think that there is a back to the land mentality that's showing up right now related to, you know, keep it natural. And this, there's a huge tie in here to food in terms of how people think that they need to feed themselves or how they think they need to feed their babies. And this like intense fear of toxins and everything organic and not just organic, but ideally you like grew that food in your own backyard and you like harvested it yourself and like made your own baby food and then did somehow baby led weaning at the same time. Yes. There's <laughs> also a big piece around danger. It's a really scary time. It feels like for, for parents. So there's a, a vigilance that's really encouraged around um, all the really intense things that can happen to your children and trying to like protect their physical safety as much as possible. Um, there's a real, problematic lens around disability within that that shows up for folks in terms of like, how do I really maximize having, you know, quote unquote, the most healthy child that I can. Uh, Another marker is related to self-care. And so the idea that self-care has become really prescriptive under the impossible parenting culture. And so now it's a lot of shoulds that has really gotten away from 
you know, asking like, how do I care for myself? Which is usually a combination of doing things that are really boring and doing things that are really lovely and indulgent and really prioritizing rest. But really this hyper feminized, often really health based approach to like thinking about what it means to take care of yourself. So you need to be exercising more and you need to be meditating more and you need to like not eat sugar and all the messages that, that people get, all these shoulds um, that can show up in, in self-care, which is not usually doing us any favors when we're approaching it in that way. And that I think the most frustrating part for me about that is that when people are having a hard time, then they start to get blamed. They're like, oh, well, you haven't been taking care of yourself and now you're feeling burnt out. And I'm like, that's not really what happened. And then the last two um, pieces related to um, this is uh, making sure that every moment is magical and marked in some way. And so it's really interesting to see what has happened with social media because we are the first parenting generation to be going through this like really intense and often things that we would like to be really private in a really public way. And so the idea of having, you know, a family brand and the idea of like all of the the markers um, that we're supposed to be celebrating with our children and to be celebrating them publicly creates a lot of uh, tension, I think, for folks. And we, we know that it's ridiculous. And we're just seeing vignettes of like the best parts of other people's lives when we are online. And yet that doesn't seem to necessarily really matter in terms of how it makes us feel when we're watching other families doing things that we are not doing because we're at home in our pajamas watching Paw Patrol for the fourth time in a row. And then finally, it's the last piece of this is the idea that we invest up front with our kids. And so if we invest up front, then we will be rewarded later. And that really ties into some of the stuff I was mentioning with that early years, um, the years before five stuff. Um, that, like you got to get it right now or your kids are screwed. Like there's no hope for them, even though we know that's not really how like neuroplasticity in the brain works. We know that there's lots of flexibility in terms of like people's ability to grow and change. And it's not as damning as it seems on the surface. You know, my neck hurts from nodding so much for the last uh, few minutes that you were talking. (laughs) I'm like, I can relate to all those. And I think, I think, you know, it's really interesting because like some of them, I'm like, okay, that the whole keep it natural thing. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can call like, I can call BS on that. Like that one doesn't trigger me. But then there's other ones that do like there's, you know, the the, there's other aspects that you mentioned just in terms of I think, in particular, probably like the more you sacrifice equates to like the more you love that, like I feel really impacts and the invest up front be rewarded later for sure for me personally really impacts the um the way I feel about myself as a parent. And so it's really interesting how like when you were talking about each of those values of impossible parenting, like, which ones like I kind of had an internal reaction to and which ones I was able to really be like, Oh, yeah, okay, I can I can kind of reject that or do the things that I want to do that feel good to me versus doing the things that I feel like I should be doing. And I know one of the things you mentioned in the book was just that, you know, there's nothing wrong with kind of prescribing to any of those values, but what, like, when does it become problematic? That's a really good question. And thank you, because I wanted to clarify, there's nothing wrong with any of those pieces, particularly related to self-care. I feel like I do love bubble baths. I'm like, I promise I'm not taking them from you. Of course you get to enjoy bubble baths, but I think it's being really connected to the undertone of, of the why and really being attuned to like, am I doing this because I think that I should, or am I doing this because this is what aligns with my, my morals, my values, because this is how I, I want to show up as a parent and how I want to show up in the world. And it can be so confusing 
for us to know the answer to that, because a lot of us haven't necessarily thought about where those messages around what it means to be a good parent has come from. Very similarly to folks who, you know, might make the argument like, oh, but I like, I want to be a certain size because I want to like look a certain way in these clothes. And I'm like, is that yours? Is that coming from you? Or did you get that message from somewhere else? And it can take time to start and unpack and sort through some of that stuff. It's okay that it's really confusing. Anything that has a big somatic activation like that, where you're like, oh, that is really bugging me for some reason. That's just a a way, uh, a signal to sort of slow down and explore, to be like, what is this? Um, Why is this so intense for me? Um, What do I know now? Because I've had this big reaction to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, with all these things, what do you notice the impact being on paternal mental health as a result of this culture, like, and this pressure? Like, what, what have you sort of seen in, in, in your clients and just in general? A lot of parental burnout. A really big part of this is just the, the, when we tie it into like, grind culture and tied into the intensity of um, perfectionism and really needing to get it right, we really wear ourselves down and a, a huge disconnect from having a really positive parental identity because we don't know how to measure our own goodness or our own fitness as a parent um, unless we really sit down and think about like, how do I want to measure myself in this way? And a lot of lack of compassion and a lack of grace shows up in this space because everybody's supporting the idea that like, you can't get it wrong. Like, of course you're going to get it wrong in parenting. I get it wrong all the time still in parenting. And so there's just a real beat down internally for folks. And it makes it hard to be proud or to enjoy the relationship that you do develop with your kids. Because every time there is a, a sense of that moment was hard or we're feeling really disconnected becomes somehow evidence of what a failure you are as a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's so hard, I think, because we we all have sort of these, like these moments or memories that we have of growing up where, you know, like one of our parents said something or did something and that sort of, you know, shaped beliefs that we had about ourselves. And like, I'm I'm kind of talking outside of things like major trauma or, you know, abuse or anything like that. But just, you know, things that people will say, like in the work that I do, people will remember someone saying to them, like a parent saying to them, like, oh, you better like watch what you eat. And then that sort of starts to like shape their behavior. So because we all kind of remember moments like that, and that shapes the beliefs we have about ourselves now, we're all trying to like prevent those moments from happening to our own kids. Um, And I think like, does that, does am I making, does that make sense what I'm saying? Oh. 100%. 100%. And the thing that I find so interesting about that is that I don't think it's possible to know how our children are going to hold us as they grow and develop. Um, so we can guess as to what we think will be upsetting for them. But I think we're really bad at, at guessing because we are only one influence on their life that they have, you know, often another parent and extended family members and friends as they get older and daycare providers and teachers and, 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 and. But the thing that I find so interesting is that when we have the awareness that like, I don't want to give my kid this. So like my parents, um, for example, like somebody saying my parents were really awkward talking about sex to me. So I'm going to be like really awesome about how I talk to my kids about sex, starting with like consent politics at like infancy. Some folks will be concerned like, well, my parents always made me feel bad about my body. So I'm going to be like really intense about body positivity and like body neutrality. And that's not the stuff I think that our kids hold us 
um, to account for because we've thought really carefully and critically about that. It's these one-off comments or decisions that we make that we're like, huh, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't realized that you felt that way. Like, I wish you would have told me at the time if they were old enough, or I wish you would have talked about this earlier. And it just can get really confusing. And then we get defensive in a way that we probably thought that we never would because we're like, but I, but I gave you such positive messaging around sex and I gave you such positive messaging around bodies. Like, why are you so upset that I didn't also give you positive messaging or messaging that you wanted about garbage? Um, and recycling. And I use that example because my own kid, um, kids give me a really hard time about that stuff. (laughs) So I personally have ruined, like I've started climate change personally. Um, and they have a lot of questions like, well, why didn't we do this? And I was like, that wasn't a thing. Like I just didn't do that in my own childhood. That's only a thing now. Um, so there's a lot of just intergenerational stuff that comes up in that. Oh, that's so interesting that you say that. I could see myself having the same experience. <laughs> and yeah, and I think um, it's just, it's so to your point, though, it's like you can't avoid, it, it, as hard as you try to sort of avoid those things, like it's just, it's going to happen. It's, you're, you cannot be perfect. <laughs> and I think that it should happen. I think that that's a normal part of our own identity development, whether that's when they're really young And when you have a two or three-year-old who's really separating from you and there's a lot of conflict in that separation, that's really normal, whether that's happening with a teen or as an adult. Kids learn a lot, not just about relationships, but also about repair and how to like hold each other to accountability, how to say when something doesn't feel okay for you, set a boundary. There's something really important and rich in those lessons that requires some tension and some conflict. Mm, that's a really good perspective. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is just, you know, the, you, the, the culture of impossible parenting, how has that evolved and changed over the years? Because it's so interesting to me that in, in a culture where it seems like, and I'm talking to talk about this in a very, you know, heteronormative way, but like where women are becoming more liberated, it's, it's as if like these expectations continue to increase, like, and it's actually working against us. I can so happily nerd out and talk about the history of family dynamics here for a second, but if I go too deep, let me know because I love talking about this. A lot of this actually stems back to what happened with industrialization. And so when we had, mo- obviously we're talking in generalizations, I'm going to talk largely about hetero families, um, but when we had a lot of families in Canada living on farms and doing a lot of, of farming, everybody worked at home. And so there wasn't the idea of like, men's work is better than women's work. They worked in different areas of the home, but they had to generate all their own resources. And then when men started to leave the home and to go and exchange their um, labor for pay, women's work was devalued because there wasn't pay associated with it, but it was required because it's actually so much work to run a house. And it definitely was a ton of work before cars and refrigeration and, you know, stoves in individual homes and and all the things that make all the conveniences that we have right now. And so that really set us up for a really rough start around the idea of like working outside of the home, um, being seen as, superior and wage worthy. And then anything done in the house that is care work or reproductive work being seen as just, you know, quote unquote, women's work, which we know is not true. And then um, after World War, so during World War II, where women were really encouraged to go into the workforce. And I also want to name that, like, lots of women, particularly low income women always worked. So we're talking a little bit about a middle class story here. 
but when they went into the workforce and then were kicked out after the war, they're like, we don't need you anymore. Like go back home and, and stop working for pay. There was a real like, no, of course we can do it all. And some of the media images are so ridiculously hysterical from this time. So you'd have pictures of women doing uh, like needlework and then images getting um, of them doing needlework with wires. And so like, if you can do needlework, you can like put wires together in the factory. And then after the war, when they wanted women to go home, the images would change to having like a child, a two-year-old child who had no adult attending to them at all, being like left alone, like playing on a roof and like falling and getting badly hurt. And so there was such a way that women were valued and then devalued really quickly. And so that's where you start to get the rise of like superwoman syndrome. So like, I can do it all. I can like be a mom and look after my kids and I can look after the home and I can go to work, look at everything that I can do. And then we're like, great. Okay. Do what you want. Like, that's fine. So long as there isn't more asked of me. And then after that era, you start to get into one being like, Oh my God, no, of course you have to help me. This is ridiculous. Like I'm not going to do it all myself. And so this is where I start to talk about um, moving from blue jobs and pink jobs into the idea of like, you know, the doofus dad who like it's hysterical that he doesn't know how to change a diaper from all those movies from the eighties to like hardworking women who can, can have it all into the era of like the co-parent and the captain parent. And so even though now we have a lot of the work that's done within the home shared a little bit more by, uh, by couples, women are still holding on to a lot of the like mental load, the thinking work, um, all of the like knowing work And we are just now trying to figure out how to truly co-parent because we haven't had any modeling done for us around this. And the more that men have been asked to show up in parenting and to show up around the house, um, there's a sense now that like, okay, yeah, if it's something that I can see or understand, like I need to watch the children right now or I need to cook dinner, I can do that. But all of the thinking still falls largely to women. I know there's tons of like people who are talking about the discrepancy and the mental load. But I think that's really brought us to where we are now, that we haven't fully figured out how to transition with all of this. And I think that having 18 months for those who, who have a mat leave and take a, a full um, parental leave of 18 months it's really hard to shift that when you've had one person doing the majority of the thinking work right from the beginning. How do you suddenly transition when somebody goes to work? It's hard. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to articulate too. Like I, you know, and you use, you, you have a good example in the book about, and I might be using the wrong example at the wrong time, but um, just, you know, like for example, Oh yes, I can take I can take our child to the doctor's appointment, but there's the whole like mental load around it of okay, like when does the child need the doctor's appointment? Where, where's the like what what time is the appointment? Does it conflict with naps? Like does it you know you have to make the appointment? Like all the thinking stuff. That's what you're talking about when you say the captain. Like that's the person that takes on all the sort of thinking work. And people who are listening that are in the U.S. are gonna like shudder at the fact that we get 18 months of maternity leave. By the way. <laughs> Unless you're self-employed like me and you get nothing, but or you have to kind of sacrifice your own <laughs> your own paycheck to do it. But uh, yeah, that mental load, like it's it's really hard to articulate because sometimes I'll have this conversation like with with my husband and I'm like, I don't even know how to really describe it to him like because he just doesn't think about those things. But those are the things that like I'm thinking about all the time. And it just made so much sense to me just now when you said, well, you know, if you're spending the first like 12 to 18 months, like kind of taking that role, it's really hard to let, let it go. And it, it is, it's so hard. Yeah. 
And I also think that particularly for heterosexual couples, you know, femme folks are just held to a different standard in terms of, again, the witnessing of like, what are the expectations of a good parent? Um, very differently from how, um, from how dads are. And so you'll often hear, you know, when women do things that are a good example would be like, I baked a cake and I took it to my child's daycare pre COVID. Obviously I don't think we can share food anymore. I dropped it off and they were like, Oh, okay. Thanks. Is it nut free? But if like somebody's male partner did that, they'd be like, Oh, did you bake this? Oh my goodness. Everybody come gather round. Look what so-and-so baked. And so it's just such a, I call it puppy praise. The idea of like, Oh, what a good boy you are. That is insulting to everybody in this scenario because men are like, I'm not, I'm not a puppy. Like I don't need to be pat on the head like that. Um, at least some men <laughs> would say that. And it's just so hard in terms of the, the expectations. So often when we're like, oh, who cares? Like, who cares if they don't have like all their winter gear? If like the kids are being too slow to get out the door in the morning. Um, and women will be like, I care because I'm the one who's going to have to deal with the phone call from the teacher. If they show up and they don't have like their hat and their mitts and their glove, like that, that's on me, not on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that whole like puppy praise thing. Yeah. It's like, when I tell it's like, oh, you're, you're so lucky. Your husband changed stapers. It's like, what? <laughs> or they say, um, like if, you know, if, if he is looking after the child, it's babysitting versus like, no, actually he's just parenting. Like that's what he does too. <laughs> yeah. That stuff drives me up the wall. Yeah. It, I find it so insulting. I'm like, everybody is insulted by this. <laughs> yeah. Um, Although yeah. the example of the cake praise and like, or we should be praising everybody all the time. Like, thank you for your service because it is so much work <laughs> to be a parent of young children. Totally, totally. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask about uh, is just like, how has diet culture permeated into impossible parenting culture? This it's in every way. I think it's seeped in right from fertility in terms of, uh, like healthism is such a huge part of, um, fertility, pregnancy and postpartum. And then children's health is a really huge one. And so for me, it has to do with so many binary ways to think about like good food versus bad food. Um, so many ways to think about, uh, that we, when folks are are pregnant, that they lose agency over their body in terms of like how they feed it or how they don't feed it. And then also just the changes that happen to folks' bodies when it comes to um, how hard that can be for some folks in pregnancy to gain weight. Are they gaining enough weight uh, according to like their community? Are they gaining too much weight according to their community? And it is such a hugely unsettling thing to go through. I think especially for folks who have really dealt with a lot of disordered eating or dealt with a lot of, uh, like really tried to get themselves out of diet culture, they can get pulled back in really quickly. And I think that when so many things are out of control, particularly postpartum, the, I'm thinking back to, uh, the podcast you did that sort of explained like how diet culture and dopamine are really linked and how going on a diet gives you the sense of like, ah, I've got a boost. I'm suddenly in control. I see that a lot with my clients that they're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just start like eating really healthy and I can actually see the dopamine boost happening for them as they're like, I'm going to take control of the situation when really what they want is they want to get more sleep or they want their partner to get up with the baby in the night. They want to rest and like take care of themselves but because that feels really impossible, they turn 
to restricting or controlling food or controlling movement as a way to just give them that sense of agency over their life that you really have to build a new relationship to once you have a baby. Yeah. And I see it really permeating into like the way that, you know, you should feed your child and, and like, you know, people who are like so afraid of their child eating like sugar or GMOs or whatever it is. And, and how that is, is becoming so much more, I think than it ever, well, it ever was like, it's like, Cheerios. It's like, oh my gosh, but there's like wheat in that and sugar and all this stuff. And by the way, my mom wouldn't let me eat Cheerios. So I know how screwed up you can become as a result of that. But like, I, you know, it's just, it's, I, I feel like that's becoming even louder as well. Like just that, that you have to kind of try to feed your child like perfectly in order to ward off any sort of like illness. And that starts with nursing. That starts right at the beginning in terms of the politics around nursing. And I I saw on Instagram um, maybe almost a year ago, they were looking for uh, some organization was looking for research participants because they wanted to study the relationship between nursing and childhood obesity. It's like, oh, it's so intense. So intense to be making um, making those links. The idea, yeah, you get this right now. You do this thing now. Your child will be rewarded later. And the healthism that is just so seeped in a lot of the messages around how we feed our kids. And I, as an 80s kid, I'm like, oh, the joy of like beefaroni. Like I need my kids to know the joy that comes from like beefaroni. <laughs> it was such a positive part of my own childhood. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, one of the other things that you mentioned is just, you know, the, the, the pressure of trying to be like, even like body positive and how parents who believe in body positivity often feel like it's kind of a portrayal of their politics to really talk about the feelings they're having about being in a different body. Can you, can you speak to that? Yeah. And that is something that I'm starting to see more and more of as, um, as body positivity and body neutrality is starting to really seep in, I think, to people's into people's day to day politics. There's a, a sense that if you say out loud, like, oh, I'm going to go on a diet, that there can be a real like pushback in some um, parenting circles where people are like, oh, you know, you don't need to go on a diet and, and all the sort of politics that go along with that. And so then what happens is that people feel really torn between I know politically and I know as a feminist that I believe that like my body gets to be any size and I believe that I get to explore what it means to be in this body and feel or I believe that people get to explore being in, in bodies in whatever shape and size. But then when I'm like alone and I'm like looking in the mirror and I'm like trying on pants that I wore before I had this baby, I can't feel any of that. That's only a cognitive belief. And it can create, it creates a lot of tension and makes it really hard to know where to go to talk about that. Because if you go to your friends who share politics, you're going to get one message. If you go to your friends who love talking about dieting, you're going to get a different message. And there's just a lot of loneliness for folks within that. Mm-hmm. So what would you, your advice be to someone who's experiencing something like that? Just to really honor the dissonance that like, that's really normal. And that I liken diet culture and impossible parenting culture uh, in, in lots of ways that I'm like, you're still swimming in diet culture, you're still swimming in impossible parenting culture. Like you can bring your head above water and you can see it for like, all the things that are wrong with this. But while you're swimming in it, yeah, it's going to impact you. It'll like, 
get in your mouth sometimes. It'll get in your eyes. Like it's really hard to like fully escape that. And just be really, really gentle during those transitions because your feelings are always valid. Um, you don't need to justify them. And it's normal for us to have contradictory feelings, like to have more than one feeling about um, the same thing at the same time, because we are comprised of a lot of different complex internal parts. Yeah, I was saying to someone the other uh, couple of weeks ago, just that I really like, I just don't even know if you can ever kind of completely erase some part of you that desires weight loss. Like that part of you is there. It's a very innocent part of you. It's like, it's completely born out of the culture that we live in. But, you know, we don't feel bad for feeling that way or wanting that rather, you know, like be curious with it and explore it and let those feelings be there. And it doesn't mean you have to listen to that or follow that you know, the direction from that voice, but, but, you know, trying to kind of have this, having this expectation that you're going to like, never want to lose weight to me seems like it, that seems just like a far stretch given the culture that we live in. Like, I just, I think we need to be realistic that that may become like a quieter whisper or something in the background. Um, that's not as loud as it once was in our lives, but not something that's ever going to completely go away. I totally agree. And I also think that for most of us, bodies go through pretty significant changes if we carry and birth our own children. That if it took a lot of work to accept the body that you were in, like it makes sense that there'd be some stuff that would be unearthed. And you're like, okay, now I got to do that again because now I have, I have this really different relationship to my body. And it makes sense to me that all those old patterns would get activated. Even if like, yeah, you don't have to act on them. You don't have to do them. You just get to like honor that they're there. And that's a really normal part of, um, of the process, I think, for a lot of folks. Yeah. So you have a big portion of the book that's dedicated to healing. And obviously, we can't go into everything in there. But I'm just wondering if you could just give some general advice or like some of the things that you feel are most pertinent around what people can do to resist the culture of impulsible parenting. I think there's a few things that really stick out in terms of how to to, to navigate that. The, the first big one for me is really understanding and befriending your nervous system. Because so much of parenting young children is so activating to our nervous system in terms of, you know, when our baby cries, that mobilizing fight fight system can turn on. There's this urgency. I need to go and do something. We are not set up for great nervous system success in terms of being really depleted and really exhausted. And so just really working with the nervous system in incredibly gentle ways. And so I will often talk to people just around like, how do you complete that nervous system like a full cycle when things have been activated, which is not just getting away from whatever it is that's stressing you, but then finding a way to like soothe yourself and like release all the stress hormones so that you can get like a real full and complete break from feeling so activated all the time, which is really hard to do when you're tired. And so this is where I'm a big fan of like screaming, which is really great for your, for your vagus nerve um, to help soothe you by like um, finding ways of exploring like your internal resourcing, like what are the things that I know soothe? So for me, that's screaming for somebody else. It might be like taking a few deep breaths. It might be like splashing cold water on their face. And then what are some of the external resources that you can access in terms of like, if you have a partner, can your partner be supportive? Um, can, do you have a friend or somebody that you can call when you're having those like extra really hard days? 
So even just knowing what is it like when your nervous system is on, um, when that um, sympathetic fight flight system is on, and what is it like when you're in that like soothed um, resting parasympathetic system. The other thing I'm a really big fan of is getting clear on what's yours and what's not yours. And so whether that is related to what you think you should be doing as a parent, whether that's what you that's related to what you think you should be doing with your body or feeling about your body, but just to have a lot of clarity to be like, is this mine? Because so much of parenting, particularly in the early years, involves a lot of guilt. And guilt comes, I think, from either I'm not doing something or I am doing something that violates my own internal compass or think I'm supposed to be doing something. I feel guilty because I'm not. And knowing which side the guilt is coming from will really impact um, what you do next. Because if it's something that you uh, is violating your own internal system, I'm like, you can just change that. You can work on that or you can soothe that. Like there's stuff you can do, but there's not much you can do if you're trying to reach, um, live up to somebody else's expectations other than like, let that shit go. It's not yours. It never was. And then I'm also a really big fan of figuring out the relationship between how to care for yourself and then how to care for others in your community. Because another big thing around impossible parenting is it's so inwardly focused. It's so focused on what's best for my kid and how do I support my kid that we've really lost the idea that like we all parent in community together. Um, and so when we take a step back and we're like, how do I also look after those in my community while also taking care of myself, um, it tends to feel a lot better than just being in our own head trying to do like internal problem solving um, 24 hours a day. It's exhausting when we're in that loop. Mm-hmm. Those are all so good. And I know we're kind of getting close to the time here or we should be up, but <laughs> I just have one more thing because you talk about the shift from self-care to self-parenting. Can you just quickly speak to that? Because I thought that was really good. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to think about self-parenting, but I think it's core. It's the idea of there are certain needs that people um, have to have met in order to be sort of feel okay and functional. Often these are really biological needs. And so it's stuff that like, if this wouldn't be okay for your kids, um, then it shouldn't be okay for you either. And so this is how we are really thoughtful with making sure that our children's bodies are rested. And so like you also get to be thoughtful about how your body is rested. We're really thoughtful about making sure that our kids get enough calories. And I'm like, yeah, you get to eat enough calories too. Your kids need to socialize. You get to socialize and see your friends. And so it's the idea that like, if I would be giving this to my children, like it would be unfathomable for me not to give it to them. Um, then I get to have it myself. The other piece that comes out of self-parenting is knowing that, um, you actually can't repair. I don't think the wounds from your own childhood through getting it right with your own kids that it's worth actually doing your own reparenting when things get activated from your own childhood. Like, Oh, my parents gave me like crappy messages about this. Um, giving your kids better messages actually doesn't heal that in you. That work still needs to be done. Um, so just being aware that like when stuff gets activated, it's your work and that's okay. So helpful. That's so helpful. I love the, um, yeah, the way you describe self-parenting there. It's such an easy way to think about it, but something I'd never really kind of, <laughs> you know, thought about it in that way before. But it's so that, um, yeah, that perspective is, is really great. So thank you so much. I mean, there's so much more. I had so many more things that I 
could and would talk to you about. So definitely, you know, check out Olivia's book, Impossible Parenting. It's amazing. I really just affirmed so much of my own experience. And I really wish I'd had it a couple years earlier, although I still found it extremely helpful now, because as I said, I don't think the the culture of impossible parenting really stops. <laughs> once, you get, once your child hits a certain age, it just sort of morphs into something different. And, uh, and so, yeah, where can people find more of you, Olivia? So you can check out my website, which is just really simply oliviascoby.com. I also run an organization that is an online organization now called Postpartum Support Toronto. So if people are struggling with their mental health, you don't need to live in Toronto. We have um, tons of resources that are free and we try to reduce barriers so that if somebody says I'm not having an okay time, that there's something immediately that you can do to support yourself. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I'm just so glad that we got to catch up in this way. Thank you so much for having me. We didn't talk about it today, but summer was my um, entry point into anti-diet culture. So this was very exciting for me to be here today. Thank you so much um, because I've been very impacted by your work over the years. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, we worked together. It was like quite a long time ago because I was still living in uh, in Toronto at the time. And so, yeah, that would have been like over six years ago now because I remember. And so I feel like I've evolved a lot too. And, and, and I know you've been sort of following along with that as well, but I appreciate you having me contribute a couple lines to the book and perspectives as well. That was really, really awesome. <laughs> yeah. And you know what I think I know we're done, but it's, I like the word evolve because it actually, my mind is a bit blown. I think in like taking that program from my own experience of being in a dieting relationship with my body, but it's something that does take years to really, to really work through that, that like the entry point of like, Oh my God, you don't have to diet. It was so revolutionary, but it took me probably years to really, make meaning of that, which is why I've been following along. Totally, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just so permeated in when you've been doing and thinking that way for decades. It's like it takes a while to really undo it all. And there's so many different layers to it, as there is with all the stuff that you talk about, too. So yeah, it's just it's 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 a lot bigger than just kind of the surface level statement of, you know, resist dieting. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Olivia. It's been amazing. And I'll link to everything in the show notes for people to find more of you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Rock on. I love that interview so much. Olivia's book is amazing. It's called Impossible Parenting. You can get it pretty much any online place that sells books or probably a bookstore near you. Actually, I don't know if you would be able to get it in in the US in a bookstore. But um, so look online. It is available there. Highly recommend it. And, uh, and I hope that you enjoyed this one as much as I did. You can find all the links and resources mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 192. And I will be back with another episode soon. Thank you so much for listening. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanin. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on.